The Laughter Permitted podcast is brought to you by Ally. Do it right. Hey there, welcome to Laughter Permitted. I'm Julie Fowdy. I'm Lynn Zowie, and Jules, I know we've had a lot of interesting people and stories on our podcast. Mm-hmm. And our episode today is one that offers perspective. Today we focus on a powerful four-part podcast series called Pink Card, which is centered on Iranian women's fight to watch men's soccer games. Yes, our guest is Shima Oliayi, and she is a Peabody award-winning producer and the creator of ESPN's 30 for 30 podcast, Pink Card, in which Shima shares the stories of Iranian women fighting for their rights over the course of three generations. Now, Shima, who's an Iranian-American whose parents fled Iran during the 1979 revolution, delves into the stories of women who defied a ban on Iranian women attending men's soccer games. The series launches on December 8th, so please make sure you listen to the entire series. And we were fortunate enough to talk with Shima about the series, what motivated her to do it, and the impact she hopes it has. So get comfortable listening. It's Shima Oliayi. Hey there, Dope Village. Lynn and I have been involved in women's sports our entire lives. And truly, we've never been more excited for what's to come in this women's sports space. And one big reason, Ally. Ally has made a commitment to an equal media investment in women's and men's sports. And that means more money going to women's sports and more visibility for what these incredible athletes are accomplishing. Ally is on a mission to change the game for women's sports. So here at Laughter Permitted, we're going to keep telling the stories of trailblazing women. And every time you listen in, you are part of that change. To learn more about Ally, go to ally.com. Hey there, Dope Village. As y'all know, Ally has backed Laughter Permitted since day one of our podcast as our financial ally. and. Honestly, Lynn, I might just tattoo Ally on my forehead. And Ally is currently on a mission to change the game for women sports. And get this, along with being sponsors of the National Women's Soccer League, Atlantic Coast Conference, United States Golf Association, and the Las Vegas Aces, Ally has committed to an equal media investment in women's and men's sports. And you, my friends, can be part of the change by watching your favorite athletes crush it on TV, by going to women's sporting events in person, by, I don't know, maybe listening to every single episode of this amazing podcast on trailblazing women. Because every time you show up for women's sports, you are helping move the game forward. You can learn more about Ally by visiting ally.com. Kick back, relax, and unwind. Let's have a good time finding the joy in life. We're smiling so bright, talking and laughing combined. Feeling alright, get comfortable listening. It's laughter permitted. I just want to thank you for joining us. I know this has been a long journey for you and congratulate you on an incredible four-part series, Pink Card. And as the legend Billie Jean King always used to say to us, know your history is what she used to say. And it 
I think serves as such an important lesson for us all. So first off, why was this story important for you to tell? There was a couple things that kind of intersected that made me want to tell the story. One was I was reporting Dolly Parton's America. I was traveling around the South and I would meet many working class women, especially grandmothers. Um, and there was this one scene where we drove by a field, like we were, we were driving through all these farms and Grandma Betty pointed to a pile of wood, burnt wood in the middle of like one of these landscapes and said, oh, they found a, a girl's dead body in there. And they found out later that um, it was actually, she'd been murdered by her lover. And in that moment, and this is all on tape because we were interviewing all these women from the South, especially um, working class women, to kind of understand the place where Dolly had come from. And I start bawling in the car. Like it was, I was in front of my boss, like it was not a place to start crying. And just like tears started shedding. And I just started talking about my grandma, who is named Iran, by the way, her name is Iran. And I talked about her and my cousins and I said, they were always alone. Like when I finally found them, they were always alone. Like they didn't have each other and they, and they, they, they knew this pain. I didn't say they knew this pain, but that I think is why I was like crying. It was this mm. very strange moment. And I really wanted, that's, that's where all of the reporting connecting the Middle East to the South started was I want to show that these two places are one. We have othered this, this foreign land. We other the South in America. Mm. We don't have a very clear depiction of working class women. It's totally based on stereotypes. We have the same about Middle Eastern women. And that is actually in that series, but I was not the host. So I couldn't just say, oh, this is about Iran or this is about my grandma, you know? So I started looking for stories about Iran. And then I started asking my mom, like, hey, can you tell me about this? Can you tell me about this? Like, I knew that she had protested in the 79 revolution. I knew that she had worn a miniskirt. Like she, she and my dad would like talk shit about the revolution, about how they were teenagers at that time. And then my dad would tease my mom. They did not know each other in Iran. They met in Reno, Nevada as 18 year olds. Mm. And um, they both got shipped off as soon as the clergy took power or just around that time. And my uh yeah my dad would tease my mom that the shah had let in more girls into universities to distract the men and instead they led the revolution so my idea of middle eastern women was like they're the leaders of the revolution like i also know my mom personally she is definitely intimidating (laughs) like my grandma too my grandma is the most intimidating person in our family um and my my mom when i asked her stories about iran all she did was talk about soccer and it was actually frustrating to me. I was like, can you tell me something else? Can you tell me another story? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. There was a party and I was in my party dress and I had this cake and then my brothers said, we need a goalie. And then it would like go back and then they were like, little Manoush, you blocked the goal. So she told me all of these like stories about being a little girl, like kicking butt as a goalie. Like she's like, I could have been the national player goalie, like national team goalie and all of these Thank things. God. God and lover. her cousin, yeah, she just, She's like tough like that. She's been on club teams in played on club teams in Reno, Nevada for 40 years. Oh. And I thought that was normal. 
Right. <laughs> I thought that was, and someone was like, no, that's not normal for a mom to do. I'm like, oh, I thought that's what moms do. <laughs> I thought they... Um, so oh, I love her. Yeah, that's, that's how I started. And because I was not getting the full scope from her because she would just like talk about these joyful things. And I was like, I need to find the pain. And um, I started looking for stories myself and I very quickly discovered that Iranian women are banned from watching soccer in Iran, banned from attending games. So they cannot watch soccer live. They can watch it in the privacy of their home on TV, but they are not allowed into stadiums. They're banned from every stadium in the country. That happened in 1981, right after my mother left. And it's interesting to note, women of other origins can attend games in Iran, but Iranian women cannot go to games. Yeah. I mean, the whole story is like so enraging because <laughs> also when they banned the women from the stadiums, they show up. Now they're, they went from like... Parisian fashion and miniskirts to now they're wearing like black long right. pants, black long sleeve shirts, like chador, fully covered, harsh fabric, because all of this stuff had to get manufactured very quickly too. Ugh. And they even come in this grotesque uniform to the stadium to just watch a game and the guards block them and tell them they are no longer allowed in and that the stadium has been renamed. It is now Azadi Stadium, and Azadi means freedom. And it's the exact chant that women in 79 chanted when they realized that their rights were going to be stripped first once the clergy came into power in 79. And um, knowing that uh, women from other countries, like even Muslim countries, can go to the stadiums in Iran, it's like... It's just so sick. It's it's, it's the such a complete psych, yeah. absence of freedom. It's the exact opposite of, and they name it that, the, the stadium. And it's very pointed towards Iranian women. It's like, you have to follow our rules, like Saudi women, like women, like just any other Muslim country, Afghan women, they can all go. Just right. Iranian women, you are not allowed. T- take us back, Shima, because you give such fascinating perspective in the four-part series about how that changed. You talked about really Iran being and Tehran being the Paris of the Middle East and all this fashion and miniskirts and progressive ideas towards women in the 70s. But then all of a sudden, that quickly changed with the 1979 revolution. If If you would, give us some examples of that and how women's rights were so quickly restricted. Yeah, so there was a lot of mayhem in Iran in 78 and 79. Um, The people did rise up. It looked like they were going to get a democracy. It was a combination of many Iranian citizens who were protesting in the streets. My mother told me that the streets got so packed, you couldn't move. Like, everyone was just out. Also, in the UK and the US or like Western lands, people were no longer having much patience with the Shah who was trying to correct the imbalance in the oil contracts, which basically controlled Iran from like afar. And, you know, all of these kind of forces collided. 
so that he was pushed out. Um, he had to flee. Mm-hmm. My mother told me there are people in our family that on both sides, my dad and my mom's side that were killed by the Shah's regime, um, but they were also killed by the Islamic regime. Um, but what happened was once the Shah left, there's like a vacuum and no one knows who's going to take the reins of the country. And even though it was a very youthful revolution, you know, there's no organization amongst the students. And right. what is a very highly organized group of people? The religious clergy, <laughs> like the Islamic clergy was very organized, was mm-hmm. very like connected, saw the open seat of power. Um, Iran needed a new hero and they took mm. over the seat um, very swiftly. And at first, you know, Khomeini, who had been in Paris, he had done all these interviews and had said, I'm now for women's rights. He had been exiled in the 60s and he was notorious for hating women's rights. He said when women right. got the right to vote, it was equal to prostitution. And so that's where, what he was saying in the 60s. But in the 70s, he just started lying. Like he's just lying in interviews because he knows he's going to come back. Um, and so, you know, some of the women were like, yes, we want this. Like they, we, they just thought like, okay, a democracy might be too hard. Let's just get a new leader in. And then he arrives in Iran around February 14th. 1979. Yes, 1979. And the Shah had left just one month earlier, the same day my mom left, just (laughs) by happenstance. And um, within days, it's very clear that things are going to be changing. So like the Family Law Protection Acts, like they're already being rescinded, basically lowering the marriage age to nine years old. Like all of those things start being, yes. Nine years old? All of those things start being shifted in terms of like legalities in the country. But the, the first big moment that everyone gets upset is on March 7th, women go to their, to their like government, like oriented jobs, like basically, if the government paid for the hospital um, and you were going to go be a nurse or doctor that day, or if you worked for the government, um, when you arrived at your job, they said you are no longer allowed here without the hijab. And the next day was March 8th, International Women's Day. It was already supposed to be a celebration. And instead it becomes a massive protest. And tens mm. of thousands of women, both veiled and unveiled, in the falling snow, who just like, they just want their rights. They don't want anyone to tell them what to do. In the falling snow, they all enter the streets and just start protesting and rioting. And then many men in the country start attacking them, like Khomeini's followers. And it's like one, two, three, four days of protests. And then the clerics quieted down. They were like, oh, it's okay. Um, we were just kidding. Like they, they put out an announcement saying it was a mistake. And, you know, they were testing things. Like as, basically as soon as they came, they also took all the women judges out of position. Mm. Shireen Abadi, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, shared in her memoir that, you know, she had participated, quote, participated in her own demise um, because she thought that the country would get better mm. with, the, with the new leader. What was the significance of symbols in yeah. the country, particularly something as simple as mannequins in stores that, w- that were emblematic yeah. of how women's rights were systematically stripped away? So if you have this strong piece of the population that is 
vibrant, emboldened, and courageous was just standing in front of tanks to make the revolution happen. It's not easy to quell 50% of the population overnight, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and especially such a strong part of the population. So that became very clear when the women protested the hijab, right? And then mm -hmm. the clerics backed down. So then one day, this woman, Merengi's car, who's kind of an Iranian legend, she's a writer and journalist, um, She's not kind of, she is an Iranian legend. <laughs> she, um, she was walking through the streets with her daughter. And about a month later, she sees the morality police that have been newly erected are visiting all the shops to start um, bullying the shopkeepers and basically telling them that the mannequins are inappropriate. Mm. They're like against morality police rules. So day after day, they harass these shopkeepers and point to the mannequin's hair. It now needs to be covered with a hijab. So because they couldn't do it to the women, they do it to the thousands of mm. shops all over Tehran, the, the capital of Iran. And Merengiz is like, I was walking with my daughter and we were laughing. We said, oh my God, these idiot police, you know, they think, oh my God, they can't bully us. So they're bullying the mannequins. And it got to such a a point with the shopkeepers day after day that finally, um, you know, after after the police came and they said, oh, there's there's color on the mannequin's nails. There's colors on her eyes. You know, mannequins were not like what we see in America today. They had like long hair, light color, caramel colored wigs, huge eyelashes, like made up faces, rouge. And so they started basically wiping off the faces covering the hair, taking off the hair. Then with the fingernails, they cut off the hands, replaced it with mm -hmm. cardboard, and then they cut off the breasts. And so only you could see metal wire coming from the breasts, so you could tell that it was somewhat of a woman. And finally, they took all the mannequins and they chopped off their head. Mm. They chopped off, and then they replaced it with a cardboard. And this was how kind of the state of fear was flooded throughout the country and women saw what was going to happen to them if they didn't listen. And I, over one year this happens and about a year later, everyone is now in the full regalia. They look just like the mannequins. Merengi says this beautiful line, these mannequins are reporting to us our lives. Mm they were showing like, this is your future. Why were we laughing at it? This is your future. And I think this was really important to me as an, as an Iranian American, because in America, I have so much arrogance. I'm like, nothing could ever yeah. happen to us. Yeah. Like, we are so great. Like, we're so free, right. you know? Yeah. This could never happen here. And constantly I'm like, I don't know. Like, yeah. and I think uh -huh. the Iranian women thought the same. They're like, this yeah. could never happen to us. I, I had the exact same reaction. I was like, oh my gosh, it went from a rather progressive society to suddenly in a year's time stripped of these mannequins, well, with these mannequins, you know, symbolizing how they didn't want any expression of joy. They didn't want any color on the face. They didn't want to see your face. They don't want to see any any of your hands and fingernail polish and all those things that are expressive of joy and freedom and liberties um, and color. And all of a sudden that was gone. 
in such a quick time. That that blew my mind as well. I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some of the young women that I interviewed um, would constantly compare Iran to The Handmaiden's Tale and 1984. Mm-hmm. Um, like in every school, the Supreme Leader's photo was placed above like the whiteboard, right? So Big Brother, like this happens within that first year. And then also, the, like when they when they mentioned Handmaiden's Tale, I thought they were maybe exaggerating. It's just not an exaggeration. Why why was joy such a threat? And the expression of joy, like no dancing, right? No color, no freedom to obviously um, show any part of your body, and and you had to wear black and gray and dark colors? I think the number one threat to the regime has been for 40 plus years, women and women leaders. Like Iran's political prisons are filled with women who fight for the rights of the people. They're beloved, like Nazarene Sotadeh. Oh my God, there was a film made about her last year, but she's living in prison. She had COVID in prison as an older woman. Like she, she, so many women have sacrificed their lives. They're so courageous. So the regime's leaders knew if they wanted to keep power, if they could just force this one population into submission, they they could stay afloat. You know, they already saw the Shah get kicked out, right? So I think part of these tactics were taking out their number one threat, their number one competition for ruling the country. And because what they also did is the way they showed that Islam is working or that this clergy is working, like, is I shouldn't say Islam, it's Islam as the leading dictator of a country. It's not, it's not like, not the religion. It's like the religious leadership. This is working because look at all the women. Mm -hmm. They're now fully covered. They're like, they look so demure. We are protecting them from seeing the men's bare legs at the stadium. We are protecting their modesty so we cannot see their hair. You know, there was an idea of we are protecting you, but really if the women's bodies could be morphed and subjugated so quickly, it showed you how powerful the regime is. And so women's bodies became like a, a like a temperature reading of like, how well is the regime doing? Mm. That's why also when they rebel, it is such a threat mm-hmm. to the government. Mm. Because if they are rebelling, it means the government has no power anymore. It's losing its influence. And I think that is, that's why this like Masa Amini murder happened. It's, it's reminding the population like, you need to stay subjected. Mm. We own you, we protect you, you are delicate. You know, like every time you enter a shop where it says you are, you are the pearl, the right. veil is the shell. Like it More was symbols. a way to keep, yes. It's because the women are so powerful they had to erase them. Mm. And they are more brutal. They're just more brutal. You 
in the four-part series document generation after generation of these strong women who, by various means, and mostly in this four-part series, it's through the fight for opening the stadiums and going and having the right to actually watch soccer or football, whatever you want to call it. In Iran, I'm sure they call it football, um, in the national stadium and their quest to get in and to change that. Where... Where are we with that? Because I know that it's gone through a couple iterations of opening, closing, saying they're going to open and not really opening and it all being a sham to begin with. But where are we with open stadiums in Iran? So there's a climax in the series in episode four where it's a moment that the regime kind of changes their policy for one game. And the hope was that game would end up evolving into like a total change in the mandate and and allowing women into stadiums from then on. But then COVID happened. So kind of there's this moment in 2019 where the women have such a tremendous victory. Um, but the stadium girls are the canaries in the coal mine. Mm-hmm. They understand how corrupt FIFA is, the underbelly of FIFA, the underbelly of the leaders in their country, they knew it wasn't going to last, like some of them that I interviewed. And then, but they were ready for when the stadiums did open again um, after COVID had like had its first year of like just total shutdown. They tried to purchase tickets. They were not able to. And actually the first game, they just said no one can go because there was already some you know, there were already some like outbursts about women are going to be allowed, right? Because we were allowed in 2019. And the regime didn't want to out and out say, no, we are going back to what we originally said. We let you have one game and that's it. Um, And then because of the outrage by women, by March of this year, there was a Mashad, there was a game in Mashad of Lebanon versus Iran. And women were able to purchase tickets, but when they showed up, they were pepper sprayed and beaten. Mm -hmm. And the next week, FIFA had its World Congress and no one mentioned what's going on in Iran. There was one woman from the Netherlands who got up and talked about the migrant abuse in Qatar, Mm -hmm. and no one even mentioned Iran. Ali Dai was there pulling out, you know, teams for each group for the World Cup. And, you know, all the girls I spoke to, especially especially Sarah from Open, Sarah Open Stadiums is her Mm -hmm. pseudonym. Yep. She's met with so many FIFA presidents. Yeah. And like, they just want to get reelected. And the thing is with FIFA, every country has a vote, has an equal vote. And you just want to keep all of those guys who are leading their country happy. She told me this one story where she went to Switzerland, Center for Human Rights in Iran sent her to Switzerland. And she thought like, oh my God, I'm going to meet all these Western men and they're going to get it. Like, this is just against FIFA's regulations. Like, this is not equal. Um, and she like list, named the statute and she got there and she said they were just as like annoyed by her as anyone else. They're like, please be, you're noisy. You're so cute, yeah. but you're noisy. Please stop. Yeah. And I just felt like, oh my God, she said they're all the men were on the same team. Mm-hmm. Mm. Was there any danger to the women participating in your series for telling their stories? Yes. So Sarah is actually still in Iran. 
And you know, the government censorship uh, of the internet is very real and they can shut down your access to outside people. So there were times when I could not reach her via WhatsApp or Telegram. And I thought like she'd been killed or her home mm. had been ransacked. She has a very detailed method of shutting down her shutting down her laptop and all of her technology in the evening just in case someone were to come to her home at night. Mm. Um, you know, to like avoid the censors, like everyone has a VPN network. Yeah, and there are girls, these girls are anonymous. Like, I, I mean, meaning that they're not famous like the soccer players. So there is some fear. There is some fear amongst the soccer players that, you know, horrible things will happen to their families and to them yeah. when they get back to Iran. At the same time, they are famous. So there's a level of fear from the regime that they don't want to touch them because it could create more issues. Mm. That was one of the things about Masa Amini, Masa Jina Amini, is that I think, you know, the, the understanding amongst Iranians is that they did not think that the Iranian people would care about an anonymous girl right. getting killed. And she's Kurdish. So they were hoping that racism in the region too would just make it seem like it wasn't a big deal. Mm. They definitely underestimated people in the region, but um, yeah, that. so all of them, it's scary for all, Zainab is still in Turkey, but she can't go back to Iran ever until, until everything changes in the country. And that's the thing, when you were rolling through the generations of women, whether it was Zainab or Meringis, who was of you know the the writer, the legendary writer, or Nazarene, or the white scarfs, or the blue girl, who set herself on fire, and just the amount, uh, or or the level and dedication to resisting this oppression, uh, over and over again, and yet the needle doesn't seem to shift very far. And that's the thing that you, you think of. We're 43 years post-1979. And you have, as you mentioned, 22-year-old Masha Amini, who on September 16th, beaten to death because she had a strand of hair visible underneath her hijab. And obviously all these protests start swirling. When you look at the, and I know you started this series and you started with the 1979 revolution and all of a sudden i know you didn't anticipate it ending this series with another possible revolution happening but what's the next step it, will there be progress for these women and all the you know the generations who have fought before them yeah one question i asked each of the girls and 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 women like again th spanning three generations was how do you have hope Right. Because honestly, when you watch it, you're just, when you hear these stories and you even see the videos of them trying to infiltrate the stadium and seeing what's happening in the news right now in Iran, it is so difficult to have hope. Right. And I think I was seeing with shallow eyes because one thing that I saw from Sara's story was there's a moment in episode three where like she starts questioning everything. Like why has my life been mm -hmm. dedicated to get into this stupid stadium? Like mm -hmm. it's like going to a park, like why it's so stupid. And I'm mm -hmm. 35 
and telling Johnny, it's telling Infantino, like, I'm getting old, you the know, like, when is the change? Yeah, yeah that, yes, was, that was when a heartbreaking is... moment to hear. And because you're you're in the midst of this incredible battle. And then she has this moment where, yeah. like, what am I? Why has my life been dedicated to this? Um, but even then. It's hard to describe, but the camaraderie of the women, even though they don't get to see each other every day, even though they're not like girlfriends, they don't go to movies together necessarily, you know, they... Like, if Sara didn't have her fight, would her teens have been like reading tabloid magazines? Mm -hmm. Like, there was this moment where I'm like, did it help her really get deeper about what matters in her short life at the same time it is incredibly horrifying to think that your life has been dedicated for like a a, a right that's like this small and that's only moved like one inch mm -hmm. but again symbols have power in iran and moving the needle even a centimeter if you think about the longevity of time and this is what the iranian women taught me was you are thinking too short term you're thinking, thinking like an American, you're thinking about right now, but mm. if you think about life as a fishing line across eternity, if we move the fishing line one centimeter, we end up in a completely different place a mm. hundred, 200 years from now than we would have if we had never moved it. And mm. of course, every time you advance, there's always backlash. That happens in America constantly. Mm -hmm. Every time women advance, backlash. Mm -hmm. This idea of keeping hope alive and sharing stories and speaking up and getting loud, you know, as an Iranian American girl, like I was always told be quiet in school. You know, I mm -hmm. learned how to assimilate. Like I didn't mm -hmm. want to stick out. I was very afraid of boys thinking that I was their enemy um, because I would then get bullied, you know, year mm -hmm. at a time. And so I learned how to be very small. And these women are so loud like even when Mababa goes the men the men just went into the state like she has this attitude I'm always like I don't know if I would have said it that way but she doesn't care she's just like mm -hmm. spitting spitting like she's mm -hmm. just they, they taught me how They're to be so rude. fabulously feisty I loved it <laughs> And, They're like and, loud, yeah, yeah, and yeah. such joy and laughter. Moringa's laughter when she's talking to you um, and asking you for coffee <laughs> as well. Yeah, there's a sense of humor too with underneath the dictatorship that kind of takes over, and then you appreciate moments of joy mm. so much, like you prize it because it's not available in everyday life. In episode four, when Sara says, looking at the girls' faces at that game, that final game, I don't want to share too much, but it was so different than being in the streets of Iran and seeing the depression. Merengiz also talks about that social freedom, like being able to play soccer, the joy that my mom talks about soccer, like the way she talks about soccer, that's, that's life. Mm -hmm. And so kind of the closeness of these different women, the fact that there's no hero among them, like they're a collective. They are understanding things about society and the future of society that I'm still trying to understand. And also they see beyond now, mm -hmm. like the fact, you know, 
I don't want to give away the ending of the series, but what Mabuba tells me about the fact that I'm asking her about this story, just that generational wisdom, courage, hope, joy, that it was in secret spaces. Mm -hmm. It was like kept alive. I want more of that even here. Like Mm -hmm. the oppression, the upside of this horrific oppression is it forced these women to get so close Mm -hmm. because they had to keep hope alive. What if they hadn't? This Mm -hmm. moment wouldn't have happened. Yeah. When, When you see all that's happening right now in Iran, like the news that just came out about them saying they're going to get rid of the morality police. To me, that sounded very similar to, okay, let's appease them for the moment and make sure that we quell the protests because really we're, we're not going to be changing much. We're just going to pretend like we're changing much. Is, is it, is that feel similar to you? Or do you feel there's, there, there's real hope in, in some change happening? The fact that it was even said, even though now it's being contested and now they might be taking it back is an impossible to possible moment. So in that way, it's amazing. It's also incredibly frustrating because it's just not enough. And it's a way to placate. It's the same way. This is why, you know, I, I went, I told ESPN, like, I want to do this series about the stadium women. I did not tell them I was going to do an episode on the mannequins, you know, (laughs) and like they, they got surprised, you know, but they love the story. Like people love that story. But the reason I share it is because at the time that happened, there's so many lessons to be learned from that 79 moment and the mistakes of the past can now be implemented for today. And one of those is the clerics did the same thing. They said, just kidding. We didn't mean that. Like, just kidding. We don't really want a morality police. You know what I mean? And it's just, it it enraged many people on, especially Iranians, because they felt like it was giving a tacit, like appeasement to what's been happening. Like, oh, it's all resolved now. We're good. And they don't think that we are good. Um, there needs to be a a change in Iran and they're very committed to making that happen. Like young girls, no one is going out in in a hijab anymore. Mm -hmm. It's just like these, like the young people I'm talking to who are there, they said there's like no going back. Mm. And this is all, these are all tactics, right? So if like, this is also something I learned as a woman, like when someone would lie to me, I would believe them because I wouldn't lie to them. And I had to learn through growing up, oh, if someone is lying, like, it doesn't matter if I wouldn't lie about that, they can lie. And the regime has constantly lied. Like, just, Mm -hmm. there's so much documented Mm -hmm. proof of lying. Zainab, who was 22 when she was kicked out, they broadcasted on TV that she was an enemy of the state. She's just, like, the most fervent soccer fan you've ever met. Just, like, a fun wonderful like kid and yeah there's just no truth anymore in the country that was also one of the reasons that azadi stadium became the battleground because these girls were trying to get out the truth about their lives because the Mm -hmm. regime also told fifa and international people who were concerned international kind of interested parties that the women 
in our culture don't want to watch soccer. Right. This is not our fault. There's even a website where you go and you click and it says that women can purchase tickets, but it leads to nowhere. <laughs> so they screenshot it and sent it to FIFA. Uh, this is so bad. Yeah, so when you hear morality police are gone, you're like, these people are, they've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. They ain't ain't buying how this to- bullshit anymore. <laughs> yeah. This story was clearly very personal for you to tell. Your mom is in the series as a translator. She translates Farsi for you. What did you learn by doing this series? I think one of the things that was really helpful to me is seeing how my daily suffering or my struggle as a woman is so connected to so many other women. You know, like even Elam Taj, like the first modern poet in Iran, like the realities of her life are just mm-hmm. horrifying. But I I think sometimes we when we're fighting, you know, when we're when we're just facing our daily lives, we feel so alone. And I, it really helped me connect to I'm just part of this uh, bigger web of like of change and of of like earning every ounce of freedom. I also got a little bit less scared of pissing people off. I think I used to be re- I used to be really That's scared awesome. of that. Like I <laughs> I really wanted this is part of like my assimilation like as a first gen is like I really wanted to be liked. I felt like that was really important for no one to ever have a bad word about you or anything like that. And I remember this happened several times during the series. I would ask a girl like, what did you think when your mom was arrested? Or what did you think when you were arrested? Or, and they, all of them, every, every age, every generation, without even flinching, just told me, because we do the right thing, that is why they abuse us. Mm. Because they do, we do the right thing, that is why we go to jail. Because we do the right thing, that is why they say we are evil. They broadcast, they, they attack us. Um, and that was just, it was like, the, it had been instilled in young girls even. Like, Merengis Carr's daughter saw her arrested. And she said, yeah, because my mom did the right thing. That's why the police came and I watched her get her hands cuffed and taken to the prison. Like it just, it's a total different idea versus like, if I had someone in my home get arrested, you go, what did they do? Like, it's just, the thinking is so free because their bodies were restricted, their thinking had to get free in Mm. order to survive. And I thought about like, wow, my mind is so restricting. My body is free, but my mind, Mm. I I can trap myself in my own prison. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't do this, I can't do that. It's like, no, you can do a lot. And piss everyone off. Who cares? You know, like, I don't know. That's amazing. (laughs) Wow. That is, that's profound. That is really profound. We close out our episodes with high-low cheer, which is the high of, let's do it for this story, if you would. The high of telling this story and sharing this story, the low, and then the cheer is for someone you're grateful for who helped you along the way. The high of the story is 
I'm hope this is to yet to be seen is I'm hoping this helps humanize the people inside the country for people that maybe don't care yet about what's going on. And I and the high is that the Iranian women totally hijack the men's World Cup. <laughs> That's why like their story hijacks these next 20 days. Um, and yeah, and I just appreciate being able to be maybe even a little bit helpful for the people who are actually risking their lives. This, the low was definitely um, being terrified to re-traumatize anyone who's mm. been through this. Mm -hmm. Like, Sara was, is Sara is like my love in the series. Like, you can tell from the mm -hmm. series, I am totally in love with her. <laughs> like, I just think she's like the shit. Um, but yeah, she had just left when I called her the last time we talked she had just left iran and the morality police had asked her all these questions mm. and then i had to ask her questions about the story and she got very upset she's like this is just like the morality police and mm. and seeing what it's done mentally like how it's like hurt her like living in that world and then also being underground as this like mm -hmm. rights leader has been was really trauma it was like the low and also watching videos watching the video of masa amini's mother crying mm. over her daughter's dead body it um and any video or a photo of the brutality was the of the current reality and what has happened in the last 40 years and the the cheer i, I mean obviously i think my mom who is such a character and like and allowed me to kind of just like really you know just allowed me to kind of explore what this world is like with her by my side without her i would not be an iranian born woman you know and um i'm really appreciative for the fact that she kept she kept joy alive in my household she wasn't always mourning everything bad that had happened you know she didn't mm -hmm. get to see her father pass away she never went back to iran till very recently just very quickly once um and she didn't mourn it she just stayed strong and bright and i really appreciate that i appreciate and again i appreciate everyone who spoke to me for this series there's so many people this is like thousands millions of people's story and um i appreciate people letting me in and also i appreciate now being hopefully part of a, a little bit a part of this legacy that series i really hope everyone downloads it, listens to it, because it is really well done. Agreed. What's your takeaway? My takeaway, actually, is... Uh, the thing I keep going back to is the courage. The courage these women display, given how very frustrating their situation continues to be, and yet what Shima showed is generation after generation of women brave enough to continue the fight to simply have the right to live freely. And as inspiring and infuriating that is at the same time, especially given 
You have institutions, for example, like FIFA, who have the power to change things mm -hmm. and pretend like they are, which is what drives me nuts, mm -hmm. and instead fail to act and support the rights of these women. And yet these women still stand up and speak out and continue to show that bravery. Mm. My takeaway is the importance and value of journalism in telling these stories. Shima paints a picture through the lens of sports that it illustrates a much larger issue going on, or really not just issue, but a history of a culture, of a, a country and women in it. And the way I feel after listening to this series is that these are stories that are critical for us to hear. And I feel like it could have been easily a 10-part series. I'd love to hear that as well. I mean, there's just mm -hmm. so much that isn't told as well. So um, big cheers to Shima for pitching this and putting this all together and for 30 for 30's podcast series doing it as well. Questions permitted. What do we got? This question comes from Instagram at Kate Blair Yoga Movement would like to know, can you please get Flash on the podcast? <laughs> what was the what was that Insta handle? Kate Blair Yoga Movement. Well, Kate Blair Yoga Movement, your wish is our command. <laughs> we will have Flash on our last episode. Flash is back. Dr. Colleen Hacker, yes, in the house for our final episode of season eight. So we're very excited about that. Yes. Drum roll, please, Lynn. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please check out the 30 for 30 series Pink Card wherever you get your podcast. It drops on Thursday, December 8th. So be sure to check it out. And we appreciate, as always, our sponsors, Ally and Dick Sporting Goods, along with Kate Diaz, who wrote and composed our theme music. We'll see you all again soon next week. And remember, as always, kids, sing it with us. Laughter, Laughter permitted. If we move the fishing line one centimeter, we end up in a completely different place.